You're listening to Sermons by the Park, a weekly podcast sharing the Word of God as it is proclaimed from the pulpit of Union Congregational Church in East Walpole, Massachusetts. Our current sermon series is called In the Beginning, a three-part exploration of the foundational experiences in the life of faith drawn from scriptures found in the book of Genesis. Here's this week's message. The first scripture reading is from the book Genesis 3, verses 1 through 13 and 22 to 24. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to me to be with me she gave me the fruit from the tree and i ate then the lord god said to the woman what is this that you have done the woman said the serpent tricked me and i ate then the lord god said see the man has become like one of us knowing good and evil and now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever therefore the lord god sent him forth from the garden of eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a sword flaming, and turned to the, turning to guard the way to the tree of life. May God add a blessing to the reading and hearing of this word. Our second scripture reading this morning comes to us from Paul's letter to the church at Rome in the third chapter, verses 21 through 24. Let's continue to listen for God's word for us here today. But now, apart from law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, that is. For there is no distinction, no distinction, since all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
This is God's word for us here today. Thanks be to God. You join me now in a moment of prayer. Let us pray. In these few moments, O God, allow us to gather up our past and our present, to take our experiences and weigh them in the scales of your truth. We offer up the raw materials of our lives to you and ask that you would send forth your spirit to brood over the stuff of life until it becomes fully responsive to your will and our private thoughts and our private hopes and our private desires may be illumined and enlarged, becoming one with your great hopes and your great desires. Accept now, I pray, the stirrings of our hearts and the meditations of our minds, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, friends, this morning we are continuing in a sermon series called In the Beginning. We're gleaning insights into the foundational experiences of faith from these primordial stories in the book of Genesis. Last week we heard the story of creation told in Genesis 1, this litany of order emerging out of chaos set to the rhythm of God's spirit, first pausing, then speaking, then waiting again, and then speaking again. God creates. But of course, God's creative activity does not negate or destroy the chaos of the waters and the earth that were there in the beginning. No, God's creation instead joins chaos with order in a creative synthesis to the word and will of God. We call God's will for the world the paths of righteousness. We talk about God ordering the way of things in an intentional way, and we in turn seek to follow in those ways of God. And I shared last week that this insight into the orderliness of creation was, uh, came out of my own study of the thought of Howard Thurman, the great 20th century theologian. He gave a series of sermons in 1953 on what he called the divine encounter, where he talks about the orderliness of creation as a place we encounter God. But he does that in the second of his sermons. He started that sermon series in a more intuitive place, I think. And that is where we turn today to think about the divine encounter, namely in the experience of disorder. How often indeed do we recognize the presence and the providence and the unbelievable grace of God in the normal course of our daily lives? Of course, the most pious and devout among us know that we must pause and give thanks to our creator because we do indeed get all good things from God. And yet, this general pervasive sense that things are going all right, that often doesn't have the same sort of spiritual impact upon us, I think, than that the acute encounter with the divine does when we experience things going wrong. Thurman calls this the crisis. He says every life is involved eventually in some form of crisis. 
whether it comes in one moment, dramatic and singular, or is subtle and pervasive, lasting over a long period of time, every life eventually involves a crisis. And by a crisis, Thurman means a thing that happens when the forces that seem to push one out of the familiar pattern of security or living affect us when we're pushed out of the familiar context of our normal behavior. Something happens and it pushes you out of that. But even when that happens, there's something in you that pulls you back. It is the push and the pull, this tug of war, this tension between these two forces in us that is the thing that makes the crisis. We have to acknowledge that without order, without things going right, there would be no sense of crisis because there would be nothing that pushes us out of the familiar. At the same time, the pull of a a disorderly experience of a a sickness or or a loss or, or a grief, the pull of that disorder shows us the very value of the comforting assurance of God's providence, the value of that goodness of God's order. Sometimes, however, it's only ever realized too late how valuable it is. Here, then, is a new twist on this old story about sin in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve and the serpent and the tree and God walking in their midst and then God casting the humanity out of paradise. This is a story of crisis. It is the part of the second version of the creation story. If, if you read Genesis 1 and then read Genesis 2, you'll be struck by the fact that they both describe how the world was made, but they do so in very, very different ways. Genesis 1 is orderly. There is a rhythm and an order to things. But in Genesis 2, it's almost exactly the opposite. Instead of seven days, everything just happens all at once. Instead of there being waters first, God starts with the land and puts the water in the land. Uh, God throws together all the plants and animals of creation. He doesn't spread them out over the whole world. He puts them in one place, this land to the east called Eden. And there, instead of speaking and creating humankind in God's image, God reaches down and forms humanity out of mud, out of earth and water, and then out of bone. And God uses God's own spirit, God's breath, to blow into them, to to bring them alive. Now, despite the fact that this is a sort of disorderly creation story, I think most people tend to prefer it, at least some parts of it, because it's a reminder that God literally gets down in the mud and the muck, getting her hands dirty like a clay artist at the potter's wheel, and it shows that God is involved intimately in creation in our lives. And that can be very comforting. But of course, the closeness of God to all the action here really raises the question, why would God set up these two wonderful little creations, Adam and Eve, for failure by putting them in a garden with a tree that has a do not touch sign on it? 
Now, I hesitate to, to name why God uh, chose to do that, but I do not hesitate to say that it is clear that from the foreshadowing of God's words in Genesis 2, saying, you may eat from any tree in the garden except this one, we all know, we all have a sense that a crisis is coming. One of the interesting things about this story that I noticed thinking from last week as well is that just as in that moment before creation when God pauses, we don't know how long that pause lasts. We don't really know how long it was that Adam and Eve were there in the garden before this crisis takes place. In the story, it seems like it just happens in a matter of moments, but perhaps it was years that they spent there together. Perhaps they went about the good work that God had given them to do. God had told Adam to, to name all the animals, all the creatures in the garden, and then God had created Eve to be his helper, an important uh, and necessary role. And so they maybe had been doing just that all along, doing exactly as God had wanted to do until this one day. And if that's the case, it only further illustrates for us that no matter how long things go right, every life, every life will eventually come to this moment of crisis. And though she is often uh, castigated for her foolishness, her impulsiveness, uh, blamed for all of the bad things that happen, uh, the woman here, Eve, reveals something important to us about the human condition. That God did not make us just to perform a function in a kind of automatic way. God did not create automatons, machines that just do the task to which they are assigned. No, God created human beings for relationship. And a relationship is nothing without choice, without desire, without reverence and consideration. Human life indeed is nothing without relationships and without opportunities for creativity. And so, having been in the garden for some time, Eve happens to, uh, to run up against this serpent who says, hey, by the way, that do not touch sign, don't worry about it. And then Eve thinks about it. She makes up her own mind, just as we all make up our own minds about how we want to live our lives. This, too, is the power of being a child of God. It is indeed a privilege that we get to choose for ourselves what we do with our lives. And obviously those choices, though, come with great responsibility. And so Eve takes in the tree. It says she, she looks at it and she sees that it is indeed lovely to behold. It's a beautiful tree. It's got this lovely fruit on it. It is good and she says, this fruit is good for wisdom, too. And what would we humans be if we weren't after that wisdom? And so she pushes ahead for what she wants. She breaks out of the routine of everyday life, and she chooses to go after what she wants. And all of us have done exactly this at some point in our lives. We have seen something that we wanted, and we have gone out and gotten it. 
Indeed, it is a basic fact that nearly every decision we make about our lives is based upon less than perfect information and our own emotional state at the moment we choose to do so. We push for what we want, and yet against this push, there is always that pull that Thurman talks about. And here it's all of us hearing those verses. She saw that it was good to eat, and she saw that it was good for wisdom, and we're all saying, don't, don't do it. Don't do it. It's not going to end well. It's like watching a Shakespearean tragedy where we know how this is going to end, and it's not going to be good. A crisis is coming. And Adam, for his part, he's just along for the ride. He doesn't do any thinking. He just takes what is given to him, very graciously given to him by his, uh, by his life partner there, and he, uh, he eats. And uh, that's not great. I think it reflects poorly on, on us men folk. That despite our reputation for reason and rationality here, it is definitely not the case. <laughs> just goes to show. But now they have both eaten of this fruit, and it says their eyes are open and they see each other for the first time in a new way. Nothing about them has changed except for the knowledge that they are bringing, this new kind of knowledge they have. And it's not even really knowledge. It's, it's that they can now pass judgment over what they see. Adam and Eve see that they are naked, and for the first time, they have this sense of shame about being naked. And so they make some shoddy clothes to put on just to cover up. Perhaps for the first time, Eve looked over at Adam and, and noticed that he had this maybe a little paunch, maybe a few gray hairs. And sure, they'd been there all along, but she'd never really seen them. Thought, boy, he needs to take better care of himself. <laughs> And maybe Adam looks over and he sees a mole on Eve's upper lip. And it's been there the whole time. But instead of thinking of it as a beauty mark, it is now something he cannot stop staring at. He cannot unsee it. It bothers him. It's not right. That is what the knowledge of good and evil gives us. It, it gives us the ability to pass judgment over others. An ability previously reserved only for God and yet that also is given to humankind. The problem here is that the thing they notice, the thing they notice is their nakedness. And instead of saying, well, look how nice it is to be free from the shackles of clothing, instead they say, let's cover up. They notice their own imperfections, the imperfections that have been there all along, but now they feel ashamed of them. Without this knowledge, without this power to pass judgment, human beings are still made in the image of God. We, we can still do all the things we could do before. We can create and destroy. We can choose our actions for ourselves, wonder about the world. But this new capacity, this capacity to value things, it's a double-edged sword. It is, on the one hand, the reason why we can choose for ourselves what we commit ourselves to. We can choose what is valuable and good and right in life. But it is also the source of our shame and our judgment and our denial. 
And I love how God susses out that humanity has gotten this new superpower. God shows up and, uh, and asks Adam why he was hiding. And he said, well, I was afraid because I, uh, I was naked. And he goes, who told you you were naked? It's the ultimate gotcha question. God knows now, not from because anything has changed, but because of how their actions are being shaped by their own judgments, their own shame, God knows that they have eaten of that tree. God recognizes that humanity has done something that goes against what God intended for them. And I think that's a good way to understand what we're talking about when we talk about sin. It's when we grate against the order of God's creation. And Paul is right when he says all of us sin in that sense of the word. And that's the message of this story, that every Adam and every Eve, every child of humankind will live in a world in which they will inevitably come into a situation of crisis in their own individual life where their choices will put them at odds with the greater life of God's kingdom because every one of us, every one of us in our hearts wants to be what we want to be. But every one of us, every one of us wonders whether what we want is really what's right. It is that disconnect that is the source of our sin. When God realized the kind of creatures that these humans were now, God knew that to give them endless life would just bring endless suffering. That to live forever, which is what would happen if they ate of the tree of life, would not be a gift, it would be a curse. Because what have Adam and Eve now done with the knowledge of good and evil? Did it make them happy? Did it make them joyful? No. It didn't. It made them ashamed and fearful. In the end, there must be something that we do for ourselves, something we create, something we choose, some goal that is set before us that we can bring to completion. That is the only way to put us back in order with God's creation. It's the only way to realize. It's the only way to realize that things are all right. If we go on living without end, we will never be satisfied in this life, God says. And so God casts us out. We often think of this as a curse, to be cast out of paradise. But instead, God opens for us a new opportunity in doing so. God offers us the opportunity to walk in God's ways, to choose life for ourselves and our loved ones. It is not a curse to labor with our bodies and our minds. It is not a curse to confront the crisis, no matter how difficult it can be, because it is in the crisis that we truly experience what really matters. Even as we are pushed out of what is right, we recognize and value God's order, God's grace, God's love. The suffering of a crisis will only persist if, if an individual is committed to pushing, pushing out of themselves, to, to expending energy in defiance of God's order. 
In the books of the prophets, we hear God again and again saying, why are you denying me? Why do you resist? Why do you keep following in your ways and not mine? Why will you not let me guide you? And I think we all have known that experience when we choose wrong and instead of repenting quickly, we dig in our heels. We deny harder. We extend our own crisis. But what if we stopped pulling back? What if we heeded the words of Paul that since all are sinners, it is a gift of God's grace that we may yet live? Howard Thurman says, there comes a time in your life when the situations with which we have to do are so overwhelming that we know we cannot reduce them to our own control. The suffering through which we pass is unrelieved and unrelievable, and there is no way we can get a handle on it. And then, and then, in the midst of this crisis, sometimes the individual makes the great discovery that the peace that passes understanding is a peace that comes when the pain of life is not relieved, but a peace that comes shimmering on the crest of a wave of pain. It is the spear of frustration transformed into a shaft of light. Paul wrote that since we are all sinners, none of us can hope to earn or win ourselves out of some crisis. We cannot do it alone. Left to our own devices, life will be nothing but an endless series of crises. But life is not only crisis. It is more than that. And God is the one who provides that more. God provides that more in the very fabric of creation. And God has provided that on the cross where the pain of life is hung and yet that stands before us a symbol of great hope and grace and the possibility of redemption. It is hard to embrace the reality of our own limitations. It is hard to accept that the pain of life may not be relieved. But in those moments when we confess these limitations, in those moments we may get a glimpse of the possibility of an encounter with the divine that could change everything for us. And so, and so when we experience disorder in our life, when we experience a neighbor in need, when we experience questions or doubts in our own hearts, when we experience disease or death in our bodies or our families, we cannot pull back. We cannot pull back from those things. But instead, God gives us courage and faith. God gives us courage and faith in the midst of chaos because God wants us to come through. God is waiting for us to come through. God is hoping for us to come through. And God is with us always. Amen. Thank you for listening. To learn more about our church and our life together as a community of faith, you can visit churchbythepark.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at Church by the Park. We gather for worship on Sundays at 10.15 a.m., both in the sanctuary on Rhodes Avenue next to Bird Park in East Walpole 
and online via live stream at facebook.com slash churchbythepark. Now until next time, may the peace of Christ abide with you.